0: Uh, we're going to uh, go ahead and uh, get started. Tamara, have a seat. Uh, this is Tamara Park. I'm going to let her tell you, uh, tell her about uh, herself, tell you about herself. And um, uh, she's been with us once before. You may have uh, come to Kramer House. Uh, it was, how long ago was that? January?
1: I think it was in November.
0: November. Oh, gosh. Uh, there you go. So November. And <laughs> time flies. And uh, you know, the other day I was, we were in a liturgy meeting and we were going over the calendar, and uh, normally when you're ordained after Easter, you're just like, "Praise the Lord," <laughs> summer's just a couple weeks away. But Easter was so early this year that when I looked at the calendar, it was like April second, <laughs> and uh, and and I cried. So, uh, so we got a ways to go. But uh, but time flies, and uh, Tamara uh, is is a wonderful uh, witness uh, for the Lord Jesus, and is a filmmaker, and uh, with a Uh, You've done a bunch of stuff uh, which we're going to talk about, but uh, a particular emphasis as of late on the persecuted church, especially uh, with the refugee crisis that's going on. And so I'm going to ask her to talk a little bit, but before we do that, let's pray. Mm -hmm. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that uh, by the waters of baptism and drawing us to faith in you, that we are brothers and sisters, no matter uh, the color of our skin or where we live or the language that we speak. Uh, but indeed we are all one in Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us a heart uh, for those um, who cannot help themselves, who uh, suffer and are persecuted because of their faith in you. And, Lord, that you would uh, speak to us now, even in the midst of this time, that your Holy Spirit uh, would move in our hearts and open uh, our eyes to what you are doing in the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so you had kind of a crazy childhood uh, growing up. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Um, I would be delighted. But first of all, I would say I love being back here. I just have been so encouraged by just the curiosity and concern of your community. I it's I think such a rare thing to see a collection of people that are really interested in what's what's going on from a place of um, engagement of faith. Of um, authentic interest. So, wh- thank you.
0: Oh, you're welcome. For, Glad you're here. For
1: having us here. Um, are you having a difficult time? Are you having a hard I'm time? Really? You me?
0: Okay. Are you on?
1: It said I was on, but. Um,
0: there you go. There you That's there. on. Okay. On.
1: Okay. I um I didn't realize I, I had maybe. And can you hear me? Okay.
0: I think you're going to have to project. With or pleasure. here, With David. Pleasure. Why don't you hand her that microphone so we can uh, we can uh, the one that you have uh, put in your pocket. Um, <laughs>
1: <laughs> I love that. So, Here we go. I'll
0: turn you. will get you'll get it back. You'll get it back. All right. Do both. Do both.
1: I um I did have a bit of a curious childhood. As I said, you know, everybody's childhood gets normalized. Um, mine entailed every Sunday for a swath of my life going to the local prison, picking up a prisoner, taking him to church. Um, and on occasion, my dad would like whisper to us kids, "Don't tell your mom, but this guy was a murderer." Um, and I thought, I thought every kid, you know, like that was right. you know the typical Sunday experience. Um, did you give
0: not. them? Were you like, hey, Tim? Which Tim? Tim the murderer? <laughs>
1: That's uh. right. Um, yeah, I would just say Christmas parties were really fun with all these ex-cons around the house swapping stories. Um, but what?
0: <laughs> why did that? Is, why did that happen?
1: Well. My dad was a chemical engineer. Um, oh, that makes sense looked, then. Yes, okay. exactly. Exactly. Um, and he felt, shortly after marrying my mom, felt called into the ministry. So moved from California to Virginia to UVA. Mm-hmm. Go Cavaliers. Go whose? Um, and it was the 70s. He was going to work with college students with his alma mater. But as I said, it was the 70s, so that quickly became working with drug addicts, Um, and so had an old frat house, and worked with drug addicts, getting off the streets, then prisoners, on occasion, my dad would take home, you know, someone for dinner, and um, there was one guy who was, um, just ended up in our basement for three months detoxing off of heroin, so um, pregnant girls would live with us, but what the the gift of that was was there was just a sense that everybody has a story, that God is moving in everybody's lives and that wisdom can come from really unexpected places. Uh, so, one thing I just encourage you, if you have children, if you have grandchildren, live your life of engagement with them. Like, I just remember one time my dad taking me um, to talk to a girl that was contemplating abortion and her circumstances were really hard. Like, it was you know, a hard conversation with her grappling with that. But he invited me in, and I got to ask questions and, and be a part of that conversation. And so I would just say, you know, as you're, you know, just asking your own questions about the world, engaging people, whether it's at the grocery store or, um, you know, in your own services, to just let your kids be a part of that and let their curiosity and their concern develop as you're with them, so. Um,
0: so, at, at what, so at that point, you said, you know, the whole idea of being able to tell stories. Yeah. Uh, how did that, what was the road mm. where you saw filmmaking yeah. as an outlet for that kind of ministry?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, um, when Christiane Amanpour came out of the scene, I was like, yes, take me to war zones. So and Let me humanize them. Um, so that was a childhood dream. Um, but... <laughs> Once again, I thought everybody, you yeah. know, wanted to get a war zones. But um, I, yeah, so I pursued broadcast journalism and, and did some producing in Belgium. And then um, that, my dad would often tell me, God gives you a dream and lets it die, only to res- resurrect it in a more pure form. Um, and that dream really died in my 20s. I just didn't see kind of a path of really getting to where I wanted mm-hmm. to go so I worked for new nonprofits and ended up actually I was a pastor on staff at a church for six years um, but in that just really loved storytelling and I still see a lot of continuity between pastoring and producing mm-hmm. you know just curating people's mm-hmm. stories.
0: Mm-hmm. Your dad was in full-time ministry U.S., and so yeah. I mean, was, was there ever a moment where, where you didn't feel like you weren't a Christian, or I mean, mm. or when? tell us about how you became a Christian, how you came to faith mm. in the
1: Lord. Yeah, so, I mean, my earliest memories as a kid was just making up songs to God, and you know, about the grass, and the sun, and <laughs> very profound things, um, so there was just kind of this sense of being in conversation with God pretty early on, um, and it was really just watching Philly Graham as, I think, a four-year-old, hmm. and just asking, you know, my mom, like, hey, I want Jesus in my heart, and praying. But then, you know, life is tricky. And so, and I really wrestled with, I was such a people pleaser little kid, like, just trying to be perfect. Um, And so, wrestled in the midst of a relationship with God, from eating disorders to perfectionism and all of that. And in college, I, you know, just in a really quiet, non-dramatic way, was reading John again, and just, I think the magnitude of, like, what Jesus did mm-hmm. really hit me in a very personal and striking way my sophomore year. Um, so in faith, but really needed to just make it mine. And then it's just been a journey of discovering grace. I've really sucked at, like, connecting with grace through the years, and God has been very ambitious <laughs> to, mm. to help me discover that mm. um, more and more.
0: So you are, uh, aside from Lent, did any of y'all pick on this? Aside from Lent, the last four out-of-town guests that we've had, three of which were from out of the country, all said they became Christians because of Billy Graham.
1: Oh, wow. All
0: right, so Mm -hmm. Philip Jensen and George and Eileen Carey. Hmm. uh, Both became, all three of them became, one obviously in Sydney, and then the Careys, the Herringay Crusade in the 50s. Mm. But do you have siblings?
1: I do. So, I
0: mean, that's got to be one of those hard things because I can see... Growing up in the midst of that and thinking, I've got to get out of here. Mm. You know, that this is, uh, and so I don't want you to, to yeah. rat on any of your siblings, but was it, what, was it the fact that your parents engaged you mm. and brought you into it that made it so inviting?
1: Mm. You know, it was, the child, my childhood was, you know, a gift and, and interacting with such a variety of people. But there was challenges, and um, as I said, I had my own my own issues of, of perfectionism and having to, you know, encounter God's generosity toward me. But um, you know, my brother had his own way, and there was just a lot of anger and some addiction, mm-hmm. and so you know, some challenges in that. So um, we weren't Cosby family, we weren't modern family. <laughs> we had you know, we had our own own form. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: yeah. And, um, and so you, you embarked on, uh, on filmmaking. And what is it like to be in, in that area of the arts, which is uh, not known for its deep abiding faith in the Lord Jesus? Uh, what is that like? And when you talk about the types of films that you're doing, what is the response you receive from your colleagues and peers?
1: It's, um, yeah, it's been a real... Gift, as I said, to move into um, filmmaking and, and television producing, um, but there's been real challenges. I I produced a series where I took up-and-coming celebrities, or like America's Next Top Model or Ameri- you know American Idol, to um, to different countries in Latin America and connected them with creatives, and it was really interesting. Like I.
0: What do you mean by creatives?
1: Um, So let's see. So I took like a guy that was with P. Diddy and our Puff Daddy. Whatever whatever it happens to be. Exactly. Uh. (laughs) Right, exactly. And connected him with like a Brazilian jazz or a guy from American Idol and connected them to like the top... Boy band in Colombia, and they would make music together. Who
0: is the top that. boy band in Colombia right
1: now? <laughs> well, I, this is like so 2010, but um, it was Wamba. <laughs> then, Wamba. So, yeah. yeah. But the gift of that was just for them to experience a level of of community as they were on this creative journey. Like some of the um, these the talent I was working with said that the reality shows that they had been on before. They did everything to manipulate, lie. Like, I mean, they would strap mics on them and burn their, you know, that they would have 24 hours and burn them to, you know, I mean, there was just a joy in being able to, like, ethically move into storytelling. Um, but there's challenges. Like, I am, besides working on the refugees and um, and wow. the persecuted church stories, I've been doing a documentary on Cuba right now with another boy band, a great boy band. <laughs> what are promise. they called? It's, they're called Carpe Diem. Um, so it's oh, Cuba's God. first boy band, our, our newest. Our um, gift to Cuba. <laughs> yes, yes. Good grief. But I'm, um, I'm discovering what um, often what's best for the entertainment society that we live in um, is really kind of worse for that person's personal story. Mm-hmm. And so that's a tension that I go through of do I want to shore up someone's story as I tell it um, or do I want to get the most kind of salacious, entertaining um, piece? And so, you know, those are are things that I have to grapple with and go, God, how do I creatively engage someone's story and especially conflict um, in a way that will grab people's attention when Mm we're a culture that you know, we, we love, like, seeing people rip each other apart. Right. Um, and so how can you tell stories yeah. um, in a different way?
0: Yeah, what, I mean, what is it, though, you know, with film right now, um, I'm sure that if you were to track the budget in each film for special effects, they're now off the charts. And so living in a culture that puts mm. a premium on special effects and does less listening...
1: Mm. Wow, like, Andrew, I think, I mean, that's a great, that's a great insight, and I think, I mean, just the whole listening, that's, um, that's really what my career is made out of, is, is, li- is listening, um, but that's, um, I'm going to, I'm sorry, I'm going to verbally process through that, because that's, that's such fine. a great question, um, so I think a lot of, and I think we live this in our daily lives, we're so kind of quick to, like, see the story That we wanna see or have the conversation we wanna have. So, even in reality TV, that plays out. I mean, if you don't mind, I'll go reality TV on you. Um, And, like, so, like, let's say you're watching The Bachelor, like, and you see them, like, really, like, all anxious, they're waiting for the rose, whatever. Like, typically, they may have turned off the air conditioning and made those people (laughs) wait for three hours, like, have told them something. So the reactions you're getting, I mean, so much of what we watch on TV is...
0: Manufactured. Manufactured. Yeah.
1: So whether it's special effects or... When I was on the Bachelor, they didn't
0: make me do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was wondering, yeah. Andrew,
1: like, what your experience was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, but I think listening is one of the greatest things our culture's lost and one of the greatest gifts that we, a people of faith, can offer. And so um, the fact that we can engage people and have the reserves to listen, I really see it as an act of loving our neighbors. Um, And that's, yeah, I think the stories and the bigger issues of our day could could be really... I
0: mean, you think that, I mean, part of it too for me, I mean, I I like a good movie because I can escape. Uh, Mm -hmm. I can kind of check out of things. Uh, But a lot of what you're doing... um, it forces us to engage in those areas mm-hmm. that even in our own lives, yeah. we wouldn't be forced to engage in. Mm-hmm. And so how do you go from hanging out with Wamba <laughs> and Carpe Diem mm-hmm. to saying, hey, I want to go to a refugee camp yeah. in Lebanon?
1: Yeah. yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I really love story for transformation. And so whether it's doing a story on a boy band or I spent a year and a half reporting on sex trafficking and doing those on you know, stories... Like, right after my, my boy band experience, I was um, reporting on st- sex trafficking. And I, I love spe- spying out hope in the darkest of places. And darkness can look, you know, there's many, many shades of, of darkness. But so I think just looking where is tra- transformation happening in someone's lives? Where is their hope to be found? Um, that's what drives me as a storyteller.
0: Okay. Yeah, let's let's stop on that for a minute because you know that that's uh, what you're talking about now is a, a total a dimension that that we know nothing about for the most part we don't interact with people like that in our mm-hmm. daily lives we know that it's there but it's several degrees mm-hmm. removed and yet things hitting close to home like um, the world's largest sex trafficking event the Super Bowl the Super Bowl, yeah. the Super Bowl. Yeah. and so. Mm-hmm. Where, where are these, uh, young women especially, where, where are some of those areas of hope uh, mm-hmm. with those girls that are being taken out of their own lives, sold a bill of goods, and stuck?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, it was definitely a weighty year and a half when I was really immersed in capturing stories in both the U.S. and in mm-hmm. Southeast Asia. But I will say, I feel like I encountered the gospel in a way mm-hmm. that I never had before talking with whether it was, you know, a a young woman in Charlotte, North Carolina, or one in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. They, you know, to be in that place where your humanity and your dignity is stripped on a daily basis multiple times, like that's the closest version of hell that I, you know, I can envision. And yet when they're rescued out of that, whether it's, They've been physically rescued out, or um, someone has come alongside them, and they're told that they are of worth and of great value. Um, and then to talk to these young women who have now have a vision of actually investing in and in leading other women who are contributing, like that is the gospel, to be rescued out of our dignity, being stripped by our brokenness, by our sin, by hurt, being told we're of great worth. And, like, how that reconfigures one's identity. And then to be in a place of contribution and service. Like, wow. And that's... So those were the stories that I sought out. I really tried to actually interview women who um, were on the other side of of trafficking that now are leading, are doing organizations... If you don't mind, I'll tell you... Can I tell a little story of just one girl named Bella? So... (coughs) Bella was sold by her mom at age twelve um, in Phnom Penh, and um, like just you know her mom like just forcing her like this is your this is your track in life um, and I you know I was so curious, like how could a mom like do that like you gave birth to this beautiful little girl and you're gonna sell her and then just pulling back and realizing like the cultural context of that so um, Cambodia's story is that um, when Pol Pot, the dictator, came in, you know, he had to grab power, and so he um, killed off all of the intelligentsia. So if you wore glasses, you were considered literate, and so you were a part of the intelligentsia. So just massacred them. And then the religious leaders, you know, if you had any kind of moral authority, killed off them. But then the Rice patties weren't doing that great, and he needed more power. So he created spies in every home. So he turned the kids into spies against their parents. And there was this idea of a 100 eyes in every home. And so the generation that spied on their parents became the generation that then trafficked their children. And so just realizing each culture has its own vulnerabilities. Like, I don't know Birmingham well enough to go, what would make Birmingham you know, fragile enough for something like that to happen here, Mm -hmm. and I suspect it does happen. And you've got your own storyline. But Bella, there's an organization called IJM International Justice Mission. Um, She, a guy, and I actually got to do a five-part series on him, came in, you know, was, had to play the role of, you know, uh, a sex tourist, and was able to rescue Bella. And now Bella desires to be a doctor, and she Mm. is vibrant. She had such a contagious laughter and beauty, and she knows Jesus, and she has a vision for, um, you know, just a new generation for for Cambodia. Um, And so when I hear those stories, when I meet those people, I'm like, yes, the gospel is so much more powerful than I even Mm
0: -hmm. knew. And, And how old is she now? Um, When she was rescued. How old was she when she was rescued?
1: Uh, I think she was 14 when she was rescued and 18 when I interviewed her.
0: Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, So um, you've got the boy bands, and then you've got Bella... And, My life is really not just, making yeah. really a lot of sense. Yeah.
1: now. When you say I mean, it but when out. you've got a murder
0: in the basement, you're all right. Uh, but I mean, that you're just sort of like, okay, what's the next? Uh, what's the next intense thing I can mm. I can do? And so you started visiting refugee camps mm. in Lebanon due to the Syrian war. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah.
0: And what led you to do that?
1: Mm. Um, there was multiple factors that that issue got really seared in me. I um. I lived in Jerusalem in 2001, 2002, and got to meet some really fascinating people. One was the Archbishop of the Syrian Orthodox Church there, who was just telling Beth, uh, Deborah this morning, like he wears a red robe mm-hmm. underneath his um, his outer, outer robes to remind him that he's always ready to die for Christ. And I just, that was so striking to see just that level of faith in the Middle East, um, and then in 2005, I did a, a pilgrimage from Rome to Jerusalem, trekked through the Balkans and the um, Middle East, and spent some time in Syria, and just fell in love with the people. Okay. Oh, wait, let's there.
0: rewind for a minute. Oh, just a little hike through the Balkans. <laughs> um, what's What's it like there now? I mean, they really came really? through, uh, and 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 what is the role of mm. of the church, especially with a level of distrust between Muslims and Christians and how the church was kind of complicit in what was going Mm -hmm. on?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, When I was there, it was... um, You know, the church was really, really struggling. It's You know, I think we see this play out again and again when politics usurps your Christian identity, Mm -hmm. you know, and your ability... the message today of what does it look like to love each other um, is you know I think that can get lost when power and money are in play um, so you know the church was really trying to to regroup when I was there and I was in you know Croatia and bosnia and then serbia and um and they just you know had destroyed each other, um, but I think there is some healing i I met a phenomenal guy in in Croatia who had, you know, a 17-year-old who had an encounter with Jesus that had just, you know, flipped his life. And that just reminded me once again like God is not, you know, the Spirit's work, Jesus's presence is not limited by these boundaries. And so he had actually like traveled to Bosnia to like do some help his mom on something you know, encounter Jesus there, and um, mm-hmm. so that was really fun to just see, you know, these sparks of people's faith and really, um, yeah, in beautiful ways, but mm-hmm. um, that's a great question, you know, we've got hard, hard history.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then uh, you, you made your way to Lebanon, and mm-hmm. you saw the refugee camps. W- were you intentionally going to seek out the ref, mm-hmm. or, or were you, mm-hmm. that was just kind of on the way?
1: N- oh, that was so I did the pilgrimage like uh, ten years ago, okay, um, but then I went back because I really loved the people in like Aleppo, Syria, mm. that just now the whole city's raised, um, so last spring, I went to Lebanon and Jordan and interviewed the refugees there um, Lebanon, like Beirut, you know is absolutely bloated with refugees i mean it 's a there was a neighborhood there that 40,000 refugees had moved in, you know, in the last two years. Um, But what was extraordinary to me was the fact that the church is just um, living into who it's supposed to be in some really amazing ways. So, you know, these, and a a lot of them are Muslims that have, you know, come, that have been a part of the Syrian war, that have been displaced and... um, your church actually gave a significant mm-hmm. amount of money, which is so exciting, to an organization called Horizons International. In a second, we'll see a little video of the, guy, the last guy in the video from there. Um, but this church you know, that was plopped down in the middle of Beirut now has doubled or tripled in size with the refugees and said, mm. this, is, this is how we're going to live this out. I interviewed one woman who <laughs> like, gave birth in the midst of chemi- chemical warfare. And um, then she, like, they kicked her out of the hospital because it was too, you know, the, the acid was too concerning for the baby. And then she gets home, and then there's a bomb that's dropped shortly after she gets home and has to go to Beirut. And going to Beirut, she encounters this community, and she describes them as, like, the biggest family she's ever had. And, you know, that they're loving her from a place of Jesus. She's discovered Jesus, I interviewed people in Lebanon that have had where Jesus has showed up in their dreams and then they meet this community. Mm -hmm. Like, God's doing things in the Middle East in the midst of these refugees that um, people who've lived there said they've never witnessed in their entire lifetime. Um, And these Syrian refugees now are saying, we're the new missionaries of the Middle East. I mean, can you believe that? After being, you know, losing... um, home, Losing country, losing family, and now have a vision of coming back and right. actually bringing their faith with them.
0: But do you want to show us? Sure. A little That'd something? be great. Thanks. Two nuns from the city.
1: In northern Let's start
0: Iraq,
1: it over, Beth. we have terrorists that uh, have killed a Christian girl and her mother. The fear insurgents also kidnapped two nuns from the city in northern Iraq.
0: When the two nuns were kidnapped, I started to feel worried about staying in Mosul.
1: I had to leave Iraq because my son and my husband were kidnapped by terrorists. We experienced a lot of
0: persecution and problems. I felt afraid and anxious. Then ISIS came. I saw them writing on the walls of my house the letter Noon, which is the first letter of the word Nasrani, for Christian. They also wrote, this house is owned by ISIS. Jesus taught me in the Bible to love my enemies. Our faith teaches us to be patient and to have hope, to love our enemies and neighbors as we love ourselves. If I didn't do that, I would look like ISIS.
1: Step by step, I've learned how to pray and forgive those who persecuted and harmed us. Honestly, I pray for those who kidnapped my husband and my son. And I pray a lot now for ISIS, that the Lord will touch their hearts and bless them and give them love and
0: peace. When the darkness of the world grows, uh, Christ's light shines brighter. Even there was a guy who was an ISIS combatant and that had been fighting with ISIS. And he ended up coming to Christ and escaping the, uh, the ISIS regime and running to Lebanon. And we had a chance to have him at our center and and be discipling him. and Hearing his testimony is incredible, just seeing how God is reaching out to the people in the the darkest places. That was the teaser? All right. Okay. All right, so Tuesday night uh, at Cranmer House, uh, you're going to talk... (laughs) pretty exclusively about, um, about this, uh, the refugee crisis, and how the Lord is working mm-hmm. uh, in the midst to all of that. But I wonder if, if y'all would like to ask questions of, uh, Dr. Sharp has a question about the woman who gave childbirth in the chemical warfare. <laughs> hold, on, let's, let's... <laughs> hold on, hold on, wait for the microphone, Charlie. So my question is, in Romans, um, St. Paul says that, that God is obvious to anyone that looks around. And then uh, C.S. Lewis, by the same principle in, in uh, Mere Christianity, talks about that even Hitler made excuses for his, you know, aggressions and so forth. And so I hate to go back to Cambodia after what we just saw. That was so riveting. But um, in a place like Cambodia, so bereft of, of religious authority and so forth, do people that put their children in sex trafficking and all these horrible things, do they feel they have to, do they uh, display some sort of justification, I did it because, or is it just they don't say anything at all? just curious about that.
1: Yeah, yeah that's a great question. I'll, can you hear me okay? I'll, um, you know, in Cambodia, I think the majority of people don't even recognize their history and that connection, and so, you know, I think one of the great challenges for us is to be really rigorous students of our culture and to even help our culture name the things that create brokenness and create vulnerability um, for these things. So, you know, it was really, it was um, this great gentleman who um, leads an organization called Agape. He's actually an American that's come and really helped put that together um, for them. So... You know, I, I just invite you, ask questions. As Andrew said, let's just be really active listeners of our of the people, of our neighbors, of our community, and I think we will actually help our societies be able to name things that create um, that that brokenness.
0: Yeah, right. All right. Lee uh, asked, how how uh, how can we uh, see what you've done and what you're uh, up to? Come Tuesday night. <laughs>
1: um, I. I do have a website. Um, and in May and June, um, each week through this organization, PrayForThem.com, we'll be um, sending out a short video and then a meditation for each week just to be able to pray for the refugees and pray for the church. Um, so I think, Bethany, uh, we've got a sign-up sheet. We can pass that around, or um, we'll be glad to And what's your website? You. Um, it's tamrapark.com, which. <laughs> Just checking. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> I, it is Tamara. I,
0: I, I know the big joke around here is if I did that, people would laugh at me. No, uh, no, see, they, you know, like, no, you get I away feel really with it. Kind of you get away with it. Really kind of cheeky about, about that,
1: but yeah. there we are. Okay. Um, I I will say, if you don't mind, I continue to be blown away by the faith of these refugees and especially these Christians coming out of Iraq and Mosul. I mean, doesn't that to hear them say that they pray for ISIS, they pray for their enemies. And every, I, I interviewed, I just interviewed refugees mm-hmm. from um, Mosul in the Czech Republic um, earlier this year. They said the same thing. When I asked about grappling with forgiveness and issues, they said, well, Jesus taught us to forgive. We're supposed to love our enemies. Mm-hmm. And it was that direct and yeah. So I just feel like we have so much, or at least I have so much to learn from the refugees that I've encountered. Yeah.
0: Doc Shepard. Do you think that so many, many, many refugees in Europe will make Europe like Lebanon? And what should the Europeans do to mm-hmm. be Christian and helpful mm-hmm. to all these people without mm-hmm. losing turning into another Lebanon with all kinds of cultural fights? Yeah, yeah let's figure it out now.
1: That's, <laughs> we've got, how, how long do we have left? We've got five oh, minutes. Yeah, five minutes. I was thinking 12, maybe. Um, no, that's a great question. I was talking with a Belgium diplomat on my way home from Europe, and he said, you know, this is the biggest existential question that Europe <coughs> has had to face since World War II. Um, and so, I mean, I think it... Europe's really trying to get their bearings. What I would say is there are churches that are have the potential of coming back to life again because of this. If they can live out what it looks like to love their new neighbors, like this could revitalize the church um, you know in the u s we're struggling with that too of the church's just relevancy and and the church actually has something to say about what does it look like to to care for. You know the struggling for for the refugees. So it's it's definitely complicated, um, and um, but I do think it's a big invitation for for the church in Europe yeah. to respond.
0: Yeah, I think it's very interesting to watch um, the response, and I think I mentioned it that the Croatian Orthodox Primate uh, Archbishop uh, was calling on his government to expel all immigrants yeah. from Croatia, yeah. uh, which makes us look very nice. Um, but uh, it's amazing, and uh, Tamara makes a very good point about knowing our culture as well as knowing our history. This is not the first time we've dealt with something like this. World War II uh, was another uh, issue of uh, all the refugees coming from Nazi-occupied territories, and how do, we, uh, how do we handle them? So it's very interesting to me that these European nations, which World War II wasn't that long yeah. ago for them. Yeah. I mean, you still go to cities in England like Plymouth? There are still buildings that have not been rebuilt uh, from the bombs uh, that dropped. Uh, I met a lady there once who uh, I asked her what she did during World War II without batting an eye. She said, I went out after the air raids and I picked up body parts. Wow, wow. And so this is somebody who, who, who lived through it. Yet in spite of all of that, nobody is looking to the mistakes that they made at World War II. Uh, and, I mean, what was World War II? the mistakes made after World War yeah, I, right? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's, it's really disheartening mm-hmm. to see people trying yeah. to make decisions in the now, in the midst of chaos, rather than trying to get some objectivity mm-hmm. and above the fog and to yeah. be able to see a thing as it is, not what they assume it will be.
1: Yeah. That um, <coughs> diplomat I spoke with, he said, and I love this quote, he said, fear is never a good advisor. And just, I think mm. a lot of decisions are being made out of fear on this topic. Yeah. Yeah. And not going back to the history to understand right. that. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yes. Well, Tuesday, what time, Bethany? And if you want a postcard to share with your friends, you can come grab them up here. Seven o'clock? Is there going to be any, like, beverages or anything? sir <laughs> Possibly. Okay. All right. Very good. Who's? Oh, never mind. We'll just leave it at that. So uh, very good. Uh, very good. Tamara, thank you so much uh, for coming back to us and for being with us this Such week. That's a gift. And I'm going to let you, you've got some time if you want to mingle yeah. if, if folks yeah. aren't headed into the 11. Uh, but any last word?
1: Yes. Um, thank you. I would just say I've been so encouraged by your community. Um, your community has given money, as I said, to both. Horizons International, as well as the organization that sent me to do these, um, t- these videos um, who I just found out like, just rescued 237 children from a cave as sex slaves from ISIS in mm-hmm. Iraq. Um, so you guys are actively engaging. Um, and, Andrew, I love the fact that you've, you've championed this and have oh, oh. been a voice for this. So thank you. you.
0: So we also ordered 1,000 more of these. Uh, the the Nun uh, character from the Arabic alphabet uh, to sort of uh, try to appropriate that as a sign of solidarity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it works. I mean, uh, now most people say, oh, he's an Episcopal minister. That makes sense that he's got a Muslim thing on his his account. Uh, But but it's amazing how many people actually stop and ask, what's that about? And it gives me the opportunity very simply and easily, to say, this is what they're spray, spray painting on, uh, mm. on people's homes. And they can either mm. uh, convert, mm. pay a tax, yeah. which they cannot uh, pay, uh, or uh, they can run. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, they, they, yeah. they run. Uh, so uh, pray for them. Uh, you know, if, if it makes you feel uncomfortable to wear one of these, uh, just think of the people who, who have this painted on them. Mm. Uh, and um, I came very close to spray painting it on the front door of the Advent, um, uh, but the wardens intervened. Just kidding. No, I didn't, no, no. But uh, a great way to do that. You can see them all around the church. Uh, mm-hmm. encourage you to get one. Yeah. All right. Thank well, you. God bless you. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, uh, we do pray uh, for uh, our brothers and sisters in the Middle East and Lord, and not just there, but uh, those uh, children who are so vulnerable. Uh, Lord, that you would uh, raise up individuals. Uh, to bring them uh, out of darkness, but Lord, we know ultimately you are the only one uh, who gives light and can dispel the darkness, and so that we would put our trust wholly in you, and Lord, that you would motivate us uh, to love our neighbor, uh, not as simply as we love ourselves, but Lord, that we would love our neighbor like you love our neighbor. In Jesus' name, amen.